This is Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow. This is the second of three parts of chapter six entitled The Fire This Time. Let's talk about race, resisting the temptation of colorblind advocacy. So how should we go about building this movement to end mass incarceration? What should be the core philosophy, the guiding principles? Another book could be written on this subject, but a few key principles stand out that can be briefly explored here. These principles are rooted in an understanding that any movement to end mass incarceration must deal with mass incarceration as a racial caste system, not as a system of crime control. This is not to say crime is unimportant, it is very important. We need an effective system of crime prevention and control in our communities, but that is not what the current system is. This system is better designed to create crime, and a perpetual class of people labeled criminals, rather than to eliminate crime or reduce the number of criminals. It's not uncommon, however, to hear people claim that the mere fact that we have the lowest crime rates, at the same time that we have the highest incarceration rates, is all the proof needed that this system works well to control crime. But if you believe this system effectively controls crime, consider this. Standard estimates of the amount of crime reduction that can be attributable to mass incarceration range from 3 to 25%. Scum some scholars believe that we have long since passed a tipping point where the declining marginal return on imprisonment has dipped below zero. Imprisonment, they say, now creates far more crime than it prevents by ripping apart fragile social networks, destroying families, and creating a permanent class of unemployables. Although it is common to think of poverty and joblessness as leading to crime and imprisonment, this research suggests that the war on drugs is a major cause of poverty, chronic unemployment, broken families, and crime today. But even assuming 25% is the right figure, it still means that the overwhelming majority of incarceration, 75%, has had absolutely no impact on crime, despite costing nearly $200 billion annually. As a crime reduction strategy, mass incarceration is an abysmal failure. It is largely ineffective and extraordinarily expensive. Saying mass incarceration is an abysmal failure makes sense, though, only if one assumes that the criminal justice system is designed to prevent and control crime. But if mass incarceration is understood as a system of social control, specifically racial control, then the system is a fantastic success. In less than two decades, the prison population quadrupled, and large majorities of poor people in, of color in urban areas throughout the United States were placed under the control of the criminal justice system, or saddled with criminal records for life. Almost overnight, huge segments of ghetto communities were permanently relegated to a second-class status, disenfranchised and subject to perpetuated surveillance and monitoring by law enforcement agencies. One could argue this result is a tragic, unforeseeable mistake, and that the goal was always crime control, not the creation of a racial undercaste. But judging by the political rhetoric and the legal rules employed in the war on drugs, this result is no freak accident. In order to make this point, we need to talk about race openly and honestly. We must stop debating crime policy as though it were purely about crime. People must come to understand the racial history and origins of mass incarceration, the many ways our conscious and unconscious biases have distorted our judgments over the years about what is fair, appropriate, and constructive when responding to drug use and drug crime. 
we must come to see, too, how our economic insecurities and racial resentments have been exploited for political gain, and how this manipulation has caused suffering for people of all colors. Firstly, we must admit, out loud, that it was because of race that we didn't care much what happened to those people, and imagined the worst possible things about them. The fact that our lack of care and concern may have been at times unintentional or unconscious does not mitigate our crime, if we refuse, when given the chance, to make amends. Admittedly, though, the temptation to ignore race in our advocacy may be overwhelming. Race makes people uncomfortable. One study found that some whites are so loath to talk about race and so fearful of violating racial etiquette that they indicate a preference for avoiding all contact with black people. The striking reluctance of whites in particular to talk about or even acknowledge race has led many scholars and advocates to conclude that we would be better off not talking about race at all. This view is buttressed by the fact that white liberals, nearly as much as conservatives, seem to have a lost patience with debates about racial equality. Barack Obama noted this phenomenon in his book The Audacity of Hope. Rightly or wrongly, white guilt has largely exhausted itself in America. Even the most fair-minded of whites, those who would genuinely like to see racial inequality ended and poverty relieved, tend to push back against racial victimization or race-specific claims based on the history of race discrimination in this country. Adding to the temptation to avoid race is the fact that opportunities for challenging mass incarceration on purely race-neutral grounds have never been greater. With budgets busting, more than two dozen states have reduced or eliminated harsh mandatory minimum sentences, restored early release programs, and offered treatment instead of incarceration for some drug offenders. The financial crisis engulfing states, and large and small, has led to a con conversion among some legislators who once were get-tough true believers. Declining crime rates, coupled with a decline in public concern about crime, have also helped to create a rare opening for a productive public conversation about the war on drugs. A promising indicator of the public's receptivity to a change in course is California's Proposition 36, which mandated drug treatment rather than jail for first-time offenders, and was approved by more than 60% of the electorate in 2000. Some states have decriminalized marijuana, including Massachusetts, where 65% of state voters approved the measure. Taken together, these factors suggest that, if a major mobilization got underway, impressive changes in our nation's drug laws and policies would not be only possible, but likely, without ever saying a word about race. This is tempting bait, to put it mildly, but racial justice advocates should not take it. The prevailing caste system cannot be successfully dismantled with a purely race-neutral approach. To begin with, it's extremely unlikely that a strategy based purely on costs, crime rates, and the wisdom of drug treatment would get us back even to the troubling incarceration rates of the 1970s. As indicated earlier, any effort to downsize dramatically our nation's prisons would inspire fierce resistance by those faced with losing jobs, investments, and other benefits provided by the current system. The emotion and high anxiety would likely express itself in the form of racially charged debate about values, morals, and personal responsibility, rather than a debate about the prison economy. Few would openly argue that we should lock up millions of poor people just so that other people can have jobs or get a good return on their private investments. Instead, familiar arguments would likely resurface about the need to be tough on criminals, not coddle them or give them free passes. 
the public debate would inevitably turn to race, even if no one was explicitly talking about it. As history has shown, the prevalence of powerful, unchallenged racial stereotypes, together with widespread apprehension regarding major structural changes, would create a political environment in which implicit racial appeals could be employed once again with great success. Failure to anticipate and preempt such appeals would set the stage for the same divide-and-conquer tactics that have reliably preserved racial hierarchy in the United States for centuries. Even if fairly dramatic changes were achieved while ignoring race, the results would be highly contingent and temporary. If and when the economy improves, the justification for softer approach would no longer exist. States would likely gravitate back to their old ways if a new, more compassionate public consensus about race had not been formed. Similarly, if and when crime rates rise, which seems likely if the nation's economy continues to sour, nothing would deter politicians from making black and brown criminals once again their favorite whipping boys. Since the days of slavery, black men have been depicted and understood as criminals, and their criminal nature has been among the justifications for every caste system to date. Their criminalization and demonization of black men is one habit America seems unlikely to break without addressing head-on the racial dynamics that have given rise to successive caste systems. Although colorblind approaches to addressing the problems of poor people of color often seem pragmatic in the short run, in the long run they are counterproductive. Colorblindness, though widely touted as the solution, is actually the problem. Against colorblindness Saying that colorblindness is the problem may alarm some in the civil rights community, especially the pollsters and political consultants who have become increasingly influential in civil rights advocacy. For decades, civil rights leaders have been saying things like, we all want a colorblind society, we just disagree how to get there. In defense of race-conscious programs like affirmative action or racial data collection, affirmative action has been framed as a legitimate exception to the colorblindness principle a principle now endorsed by the overwhelming majority of the American electorate. Civil rights leaders are quick to assure the public that when we reach a colorblind nirvana, race consciousness will no longer be necessary or appropriate. Far from being a worthy goal, however, colorblindness has proved catastrophic for African Americans. It is not an overstatement to say the systematic mass incarceration of people of color in the United States would not have been possible in the post-civil rights era, if the nation had not fallen under the spell of a callous colorblindness. The seemingly innocent phrase, I don't care if he's black, perfectly captures the perversion of Martin Luther King Jr.'s dream, that we may one day be able to see beyond race to connect spiritually across racial lines. Saying that one does not care about race is offered as an exculpatory virtue, when in fact it can be a form of cru cruelty. It is precisely because we as a nation have not cared much about African Americans that we have allowed our criminal justice system to create a new racial undercast. The deeply flawed nature of colorblindness as a governing principle is evidenced by the fact that public consensus supporting mass incarceration is officially colorblind. It purports to see black and brown men not as black and brown, but simply as men, raceless men, who have failed miserably to play by the rules the rest of us follow quite naturally. The fact that so many black and brown men are rounded up for drug crimes that go largely ignored when committed by whites is unseen. Our collective colorblindness pre prevents us from seeing this basic fact. 
Our blindness also prevents us from seeing the racial and structural divisions that persist in society. The segregated unequal schools, the segregated jobless ghettos, and the segregated public discourse, a public conversation that excludes the current pariah caste. Our commitment to colorblindness extends beyond individuals to institutions and social arrangements. We've become blind not so much to race, but to the existence of racial caste in America. More than 45 years ago, Martin Luther King Jr. warned of this danger. He insisted that blindness and indifference to racial groups is actually more important than racial hostility to the creation and maintenance of racialized systems of control. Those who supported slavery and Jim Crow, he argued, typically were not bad or evil people. They were just blind. Even the justices who decided the infamous Dred Scott case, which ruled that the Negro has no rights which the white man is bound to respect, were not wicked men, he said. On the contrary, they were decent and dedicated men. But, he hastened to add, they were victims of a spiritual and intellectual blindness. They knew not what they did. The whole system of slavery was largely perpetuated through spiritually ignorant persons. He continued, This tragic blindness is also found in racial segregation, the not-too-distant cousin of slavery. Some of the most vigorous defenders of segregation are sincere in their beliefs and earnest in their motives, although some men are segregationists merely for reasons of political expediency and political gain, not all of the resistance to integration is the rearguard of professional bigots. Some people feel that their attempt to preserve segregation is best for themselves, their children, and their nation. Many are good church people, anchored in the religious faith of their mothers and fathers. What a tragedy! Millions of Negroes have been crucified by conscientious blindness. Jesus was right about those men who crucified him. They knew not what they did. They were inflicted by a terrible blindness. Could not the same speech be given about mass incarceration today? Again, African Americans have been crucified by conscientious blindness. People of good will have been unwilling to see black and brown men in their humanness as entitled to the same care, compassion, and concern that would be extended to one's friends, neighbors, and loved ones. King recognized that it was this indifference to the plight of other races that supported the institutions of slavery and Jim Crow. In his words, one of the great tragedies of man's long trek along the highway of history has been the limiting of neighborly concern to tribe, race, or class, or nation. The consequence of this narrow, insular attitude is that one does not really mind what happens to the people outside his group. Racial indifference and blindness, far more than racial hostility, form the sturdy foundation for all racial caste systems. Abandoning the quest for a colorblind society is easier said than done, of course. Racial justice advocates, if they should choose this path, will be required to provide uncomfortable answers to commonly asked questions. For example, advocates are frequently asked, when will we, finally, become a colorblind society? The pursuit of colorblindness makes people impatient. With courage, we should respond, hopefully never. Or, if those words are too difficult to utter, then say, not in the foreseeable future. More than a little patience will be needed when explaining the complete about-face. Probably around the same number of people think the earth is flat, as think race consciousness should be the rule in perpetuity, rather than the exception. It would be a mistake, though, to assume that people are incapable of embracing a permanent commitment to color consciousness. The shift may, in fact, come as something of a relief, as it moves our collective focus away from a wholly unrealistic goal to one that's within anyone's reach right now. After all, to aspire to colorblindness is to aspire to a state of being in which you are not capable of seeing racial difference, a practical impossibility for most of us. 
The shift also invites a more optimistic view of human capacity. The colorblindness ideal is premised on the notion that we, as a society, can never be trusted to see race and treat each other fairly or with genuine compassion. A commitment to color consciousness, by contrast, places faith in our capacity as humans to show care and concern for others, even as we are fully cognizant of race and possible racial differences. If colorblindness is such a bad idea, though, why have people across the political spectrum become so attached to it? For conservatives, the ideal of colorblindness is linked to a commitment to individualism. In their view, society should be concerned with individuals, not groups. Gross racial disparities in health, wealth, education, and opportunity should be of no interest to our government, and racial identity should be a private matter, something best kept to ourselves. For liberals, the idea of colorblindness is linked to the dream of racial equality. The hope is that one day we will no longer see race, because race will lose all of its significance. In this fantasy, eventually race will no longer be a factor in mortality rates, the spread of disease, educational or economic opportunity, or the distribution of wealth. Race will correlate with nothing. It will mean nothing. We won't even notice it anymore. Those who are less idealistic embrace colorblindness simply because they find it difficult to imagine a society in which we see race and racial differences, yet consistently act in a positive, constructive way. It's easier to imagine a world in which we tolerate racial differences by being blind to them. The uncomfortable truth, however, is that racial differences will always exist among us. Even if the legacies of slavery, Jim Crow, and mass incarceration were completely overcome, we would remain a nation of immigrants in a larger world divided by race and ethnicity. It's a world in which there's extraordinary racial and ethnic inequality, and our nation has porous boundaries. For the foreseeable future, racial and ethnic inequality will be a feature of American life. This reality is not the cause for despair. The idea that we may never reach a state of perfect racial equality, a perfect racial equilibrium, is not cause for alarm. What is concerning is the real possibility that we as a society will choose not to care. We will choose to be blind to injustice and the suffering of others. We will look the other way and deny our public agencies the resources, data, and tools they need to solve problems. We will refuse to celebrate what is beautiful about our distinct cultures and histories, even as we blend and evolve. This is cause for despair. Seeing race is not the problem. Refusing to care for people we see is the problem. The fact that the meaning of race may evolve over time or lose much of its significance is hardly a reason to be struck blind. We should hope not for a colorblind society, but instead for a world in which we can see each other fully, learn from each other, and do what we can to respond to each other with love. That was King's dream. A society that is capable of seeing each of us as we are with love. That is a goal worth fighting for. The racial bribe. Let's give it back. The foregoing could be read as a ringing endorsement of affirmative action and other diversity initiatives. To a certain extent, it is. It's difficult to imagine a time in the foreseeable future when the free market and partisan politics could be trusted to produce equitable inclusion in all facets of American political, economic, and social life without anyone giving any thought, caring at all, about race. It may always be necessary for us as a society to pay careful attention to the impact of our laws, policies, and practices on racial and ethnic groups and consciously strive to ensure that biases, stereotypes, and structural arrangements do not cause unnecessary harm or suffering to any individual or any group for reasons related to race. There is, however, a major caveat. Racial justice advocates should consider, with a degree of candor that has not yet been evident, 
whether affirmative action, as it has been framed and defended during the past 30 years, has functioned more like a racial bribe than a tool of racial justice. One might wonder, what does affirmative action have to do with mass incarceration? Well, perhaps the two are linked more than we realize. We could ask ourselves whether efforts to achieve cosmetic racial diversity, that is, reform efforts that make institutions look good on the surface without the needed structural changes, have actually helped to facilitate the emergence of mass incarceration and interfered with the development of a more compassionate race consciousness. In earlier chapters, we have seen that throughout our nation's history, poor and working class whites have been bought off by racial bribes. The question posed here is whether affirmative action has functioned similarly, offering relatively meager material advantages but significant psychological benefits to people of color in exchange for the abandonment of a more radical movement that promised to alter the nation's economic and social structure. To be clear, this is not an argument that affirmative action policies conflict with King's dream that we might one day be judged by the content of our character, not the color of our skin. King himself would have almost certainly endorsed affirmative action as a remedy, at least under some circumstances. In fact, King specifically stated on numerous occasions that he believed special, even preferential treatment for African Americans may be warranted in light of their unique circumstances. And this is not an argument that affirmative action has made no difference in the lives of poor working-class Americans, as some have claimed. Fire departments, police departments, and other public agencies have been transformed, at least in part, due to affirmative action. Finally, this is not an argument that affirmative action should be reconsidered simply on the grounds that it is unfair to white men as a group. The empirical evidence strongly supports the conclusion that declining wages, downsizing, deindustrialization, globalization, and cutbacks in government services represent much greater threats to the position of white men than so-called reverse discrimination. The argument made here is a less familiar one. It is not widely debated in the mainstream media or, for that matter, in civil rights organizations. The claim is that racial justice advocates should consider the traditional approach to affirmative action because a. it has helped to render a new caste system largely invisible, b. it has helped to perpetuate the myth that anyone can make it if they try, c. it has endorsed the embrace of a trickle-down theory of racial justice, and d. it has greatly facilitated the divide-and-conquer tactics that gave rise to mass incarceration, and e. it has inspired such polarization and media attention that the general public now wrongly assumes that affirmative action is the main battlefront in U.S. race relations. It may not be easy for the civil rights community to have a candid conversation about any of this. Civil rights organizations are populated with beneficiaries of affirmative action, like myself, and their friends and allies. Ending affirmative action arouses fears of annihilation. The reality that so many of us would disappear overnight from colleges and universities nationwide if affirmative action were banned, and that our children and grandchildren might not follow in our footsteps, creates a kind of panic that is difficult to describe. It may be analogous in some respects to the panic once experienced by poor and working class whites faced with desegregation, the fear of a sudden demotion in the nation's racial hierarchy. Mari Matsuda and Charles Lawrence's book, We Won't Go Back, captures the determination of affirmative action beneficiaries not to allow the clock to be turned back on racial justice, back to the days of racial caste in America. The problem, of course, is that we are already there. Affirmative action, particularly when it is justified on the grounds of diversity rather than equity or remedy, masks the severity of racial inequality in America, 
leading to greatly exaggerated claims of racial progress and overly optimistic assessments of the future for African Americans. Seeing black people graduate from Harvard and Yale and become CEOs or corporate lawyers, not to mention President of the United States, causes us all to marvel at the long way we've come. As recent data shows, however, much of black progress is a myth. Although some African Americans are doing very well, enrolling in universities and graduate schools at record rates thanks to affirmative action, as a group African Americans are doing no better than they were when Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated and riots swept inner cities across America. Nearly one-fourth of African Americans live below the poverty line today, approximately the same as in 1968. The child poverty rate is actually higher today than it was then. Unemployment rates in black communities rival those in third world countries, and that is with affirmative action. When we pull back the curtain and take a look at what our so-called colorblind society creates without affirmative action, we see a familiar social, political, and economic structure, the structure of racial caste. When those behind bars are taken into account, America's institutions continue to create nearly as much racial inequality as existed during Jim Crow. Our elite universities, which now look a lot like America, would whiten overnight if affirmative action suddenly disappeared. One recent study indicates that the elimination of race-based admissions policies would lead to a 63% decline in black matriculants at all law schools and a 90% decline at elite law schools. Sociologist Steven Steinberg describes the bleak reality this way. Insofar as this black middle class is an artifact of affirmative action policy, it cannot be said to be the result of autonomous workings of market forces. In other words, the black middle class does not reflect a lowering of racist barriers and occupations, so much as the opposite. Racism is so entrenched that without government intervention, there would be little progress to boast about. In view of all of this, we must ask, to what extent has affirmative action helped us remain blind to and in denial about the existence of a racial undercaste? And to what extent have the battles over affirmative action distracted us and diverted crucial resources and energy away from dismantling the structures of racial inequality? The predictable response is that civil rights advocates are as committed to challenging mass incarceration and other forms of structural racism as they are to preserving affirmative action. But where is the evidence of this? Civil rights activists have created a national movement to save affirmative action, complete with the marches, organizing, and media campaigns, as well as incessant strategy meetings, conferences, and litigation. Where's the movement to end mass incarceration? For that matter, where's the movement for educational equity? Part of the answer is that it's far easier to create a movement when there's a sense of being under attack. It's also easier when a single policy is at issue, rather than something as enormous and seemingly intractable as educational inequity or mass incarceration. Those are decent explanations, but they're no excuse. Try telling a 16-year-old black youth in Louisiana who's facing a decade in adult prison and a lifetime of social, political, and economic exclusion that your civil rights organization is not doing much to end the war on drugs, but would he like to hear about all the great things that are being done to save affirmative action? There's a fundamental disconnect today between the world of civil rights advocacy and the reality facing those trapped in the new racial undercast. There's another more sinister consequence of affirmative action. The carefully engineered appearance of a great racial progress strengthens the colorblind public consensus that personal and cultural traits, not structural arrangements, are largely responsible for the fact that the majority of young black men in urban areas throughout the United States are currently under the control of the criminal justice system, or branded as felons for life. 
In other words, affirmative action helps to make the emergence of a new racial caste system seem implausible. It creates an environment in which it is reasonable to ask, how can something akin to a racial caste system exist when people like Condoleezza Rice, Colin Powell, and Barack Obama are capable of rising from next to nothing to the pinnacles of wealth and power? How could a caste system exist in view of the black middle class? There are answers to these questions, but they're difficult to swallow when millions of Americans have displayed a willingness to elect a black man president of the United States. The truth, however, is this. Far from undermining the current system of control, the new caste system depends in no small part on black exceptionalism. The colorblind public consensus that supports the new caste system insists that race no longer matters. Now that America has officially embraced Martin Luther King Jr.'s dream, by reducing it to the platitude that we should be judged by the content of our character, not the color of our skin, the mass incarceration of people of color can be justified only to the extent that the plight of those locked up and locked out is understood to be their choice, not their birthright. In short, mass incarceration is predicated on the notion that an extraordinary number of African Americans, but not all, have freely chosen a life of crime and thus belong behind bars. A belief that all blacks belong in jail would be incompatible with the social consensus that we have moved beyond race and that race is no longer relevant. But a widespread belief that a majority of black and brown men unfortunately belong in jail is compatible with the new American creed, provided that their imprisonment can be interpreted as their own fault. If the prison label imposed on them can be blamed on their culture, poor work ethic, or even their families, then society is absolved of responsibility to do anything about their condition. This is where black exceptionalism comes in. Highly visible examples of black success are critical to the maintenance of a racial caste system in the era of colorblindness. Black success stories lend credence to the notion that anyone, no matter how poor or how black you may be, can make it to the top if only you try hard enough. These stories prove that race is no longer relevant. Whereas black success stories undermined the logic of Jim Crow, they actually reinforce the system of mass incarceration. Mass incarceration depends for its legitimacy on the widespread belief that all those who appear trapped at the bottom actually chose their fate. Viewed from this perspective, affirmative action no longer appears entirely progressive. So long as some readily identifiable African Americans are doing well, the system is largely immunized from racial critique. People like Barack Obama, who are truly exceptional by any standards, along with others who have been granted exceptional opportunities, legitimate a system that remains fraught with racial bias, especially when they fail to challenge or even acknowledge the prevailing racial order. In the current era, white Americans are often eager to embrace token or exceptional African Americans, particularly when they go out of their way not to talk about race or racial inequality. Affirmative action may be counterproductive in yet another sense. It lends credence to a trickle-down theory of racial justice. The notion that giving a relatively small number of people of color access to key positions or institutions will inevitably redound to the benefit of the larger group is belied by the evidence. It also seems to disregard Martin Luther King Jr.'s stern warnings that racial justice requires the complete transformation of social institutions and a dramatic restructuring of our economy, not superficial changes that can be purchased on the cheap. King argued in 1968 the changes that have occurred to date are basically in the social and political era areas. The problems we now face, providing jobs, better housing, and better education for the poor throughout the country, will require money for their solution, a fact that makes those solutions all the more difficult. 
He emphasized that most of the gains of the past decade were obtained at bargain prices, for the desegregation of public facilities and the election and appointment of a few black officials cost close to nothing. White America must recognize that justice for black people cannot be achieved without radical changes in the structure of our society. The comfortable, the entrenched, the privileged cannot continue to tremble at the prospect of change in the status quo. Against this backdrop, diversity-driven affirmative action programs seem to be the epitome of racial justice purchased on the cheap. They create the appearance of racial equity without the reality and do so at no great cost without fundamentally altering any of the structures that create racial inequality in the first place. Perhaps the best illustration of this fact is that, thanks to part, in part to affirmative action, police departments and law enforcement agencies nationwide have come to look more like America than ever, at precisely the moment that they have waged a war on the ghetto poor and played a leading role in the systematic mass incarceration of people of color. The color of police chiefs across the country has changed, but the role of police in our society has not. Gerald Torres and Lanier Guinier offer a similar critique of affirmative action in The Miner's Canary. They point out that conventional strategies for social change proceed as though a change in who administers power fundamentally affects the structure of power itself. This narrow approach to social change is reflected in the justifications offered for affirmative action. Most notably, the claim that previous outsiders, once given a chance, will exercise power differently. The reality, however, is that the existing hierarchy disciplines newcomers, requiring them to exercise power in the same old ways and play by the same old rules in order to survive. The newcomers, Taurus and Guinea explain, are easily co-opted, as they have much to lose but little to gain by challenging the rules of the game. Their point is particularly relevant to the predicament of minority police officers charged with waging the drug war. Profound racial injustice occurs when minority police officers follow the rules. It is a scandal when the public learns they have broken the rules, but no rules need be broken for the systematic mass incarceration of people of color to proceed unabated. This uncomfortable fact creates strong incentives for minority officers to deny, to rationalize, or to be willingly blind to the role of law enforcement in creating a racial undercaste. Reports that minority officers may engage in nearly as much racial profiling as white officers have been met with some amazement, but the real surprise is that some minority police officers have been willing to speak out against the practice, given the ferocity of the drug war. A war has been declared against poor communities of color, and the police are expected to wage it. Do we expect minority officers whose livelihood depends on the very departments charged with waging the war to play the role of peacenik? That expectation seems unreasonable, yet the dilemma for racial justice advocates is a real one. The quiet complicity of minority officers in the war on drugs serves to legitimate the system and insulate it from critique. In a nation still stuck in an old Jim Crow mindset, which equates racism with white bigotry and views racial diversity as proof the problem has been solved, a racially diverse police department invites questions like, how can you say the Oakland Police Department's drug raids are racist? There's a black police chief, and most of the officers involved in the drug raids are black. If the caste dimensions of mass incarceration were better understood, and the limitations of cosmetic diversity were better appreciated, the existence of black police chiefs and black officers would be no more encouraging today than the presence of black slave drivers and black plantation owners hundreds of years ago. 
When meaningful change fails to materialize following the achievement of superficial diversity, those who remain locked out can become extremely discouraged and demoralized, resulting in cynicism and resignation. Perhaps more concerning, though, is the fact that inclusion of people of color in power structures, particularly at the top, can paralyze reform efforts. People of color are often reluctant to challenge the institutions led by people who look like them, as they feel a personal stake in the individual's success. After centuries of being denied access to leadership positions in key social institutions, people of color, quite understandably, are hesitant to create circumstances that could trigger the downfall of one of their own. An incident of police brutality that would be understood as undeniably racist if the officers involved were white may be given a more charitable spin if the officers are black. Similarly, black community residents who might have been inspired to challenge aggressive stop-and-frisk policies of a largely white police department may worry about hurting a black police chief. People of color, because of the history of racial subjugation and exclusion, often experience success and failure vicariously through the few who achieve positions of power, fame, and fortune. As a result, cosmetic diversity, which focuses on providing opportunities to individual members of underrepresented groups, both diminishes the possibility that unfair rules will be challenged and legitimates the entire system.